Welcome to Orders Beyond Borders, an audio interview series as part of the Berlin Social Science Center, Bitsy B's new blog. In this series, we bring you insights from leading scholars and emerging researchers in the field of international relations and global politics. This is a project by the International Politics and Law Department of the Berlin Social Science Center, run by the unit's global governance, governance for global health and global humanitarian medicine. Hello and welcome to today's podcast episode with Jonas Talbeck. He's Professor of Political Science at Stockholm University, where he also coordinates the Research Group on Global and Regional Governance. His research interests include European Union politics and global governance, and he has won multiple awards and honors for his work in these fields. My name is Jakob Angeli. Thanks for joining us today. It's great having you here. We are delighted to have you as a guest in our interview series. Thank you. Yes, thanks a lot. Um, I would like to start by asking you, You've already stayed at the WZB for two months in 2012. Uh, why did you choose to come back? And how come you're only staying with us for two days now? I have to say I'm, I'm amazed that it's been almost seven years since the time when I was here for the, for the full summer. And uh, it feels as if I'm back at more regular intervals. Um, um, I have been back at regular intervals, but it's been a while since last time. And, and coming here, I have to say I realize I've, I've, I've missed it. And it's good to be back. Um, what have you been working on the last time you were here? So the last time I was here, I worked on a project on the opening up of international organizations to various kinds of private actors in civil society or also for-profit actors or foundations for that matter. And that uh, eventually translated into a book that was published in 2013 with mm -hmm. Cambridge on the opening up of international organizations and a bunch of articles with, with my collaborators. And I should mention that my collaborators on this were Thomas Sommerer and Teresa Scotrito mm -hmm. and Christian Sommer. Um, speaking of which, let's jump right into uh, the topic. Apart from an impressive list of articles uh, you've published, you've also been author and editor of books uh, such as The Opening Up of International Organizations, which you just mentioned, um, Leadership and Negotiation in the European Union, European Governance and Supranational Institutions, and most recently, Legitimacy in Global Governance, um, which you were um, co-editor of, which was published last year. Um, what project are you working on at the moment and also while you're here at the WZB for these two days? So I'm currently working on three different projects. Uh, the project that consumes most of my time is a research program on legitimacy and global governance, uh, LegGov for short, which is a six-year research program funded by the Bank of Sweden Tercentenary Foundation and involving about 15 researchers in some capacity uh, in Gothenburg, London and Stockholm. Um, and we address three different aspects of legitimacy and global governance. We, we look at the sources of legitimacy, we look at processes of legitimation and delegitimation, and we look at the consequences of foreign institutional organization of, of having high or low legitimacy for its operation. Um, so that's, that's a, a project that I'm uh, heavily engaged in at the moment, and also the one that has been uh, at the center of my attention here uh, during this visit. The second project is a project on the performance of international organizations, where we essentially uh, try to explore the, the policy making and the policy output of IOs as, as a way of, of getting at their performance or their capacity to, to um, um, deal with societal problems. And, and the kind of prerequisite for IOs, for international organizations, to deal with societal problems is that they're able to respond to these problems and uh, that they're able to respond through policy making and through the production of policy that eventually can, can, can serve to, to ameliorate these problems. So that's, that's the second project that I'm, I'm working on together with three colleagues. 
And uh, then a third project is about to be concluded, and that is a pan-European project on the reform of the Eurozone from 2010 to, to 2015, where we explored domestic preference formation processes, uh, but also interstate bargaining and uh, engaged in some pretty massive data collection that resulted in, in data sets that we and others can now draw on to better understand preference formation and, and interstate bargaining in the EU. And can you give us already a glimpse of uh, exciting results, or is this all still uh, in the process of being developed? Well, we just very recently published a special issue with European Union pol uh, politics, uh, 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 especially that came out from this project. And one of the core findings in the research that I myself have been involved in is, is looking at the extent to which um, member state got what they wanted in the negotiations. And, and here I can say, and I think it's, it's the right place to possibly say this, that, that Germany was not as, uh, did not have as much success in getting what it wanted in the Eurozone reforms as is often contrary to public made, perceptions. Made, Exactly, as is often made the case in the public debate. Um, Germany often took a fairly extreme position on many of these issues and had to compromise a lot. So in the end, there was quite a distance between Germany's initial position and the eventual outcome. That doesn't mean that Germany was not very influential in pulling other member states toward its outcome as well. But yes. uh, it didn't get necessarily what it wanted on, the, on these issues. Sounds exciting. Um, great projects ahead. Um, coming back to the concept of uh, legitimacy, which is um, obviously also takes a central position in the uh, most recent book you co-edited um, and in the theoretical architecture thereof. Very often, this concept of legitimacy, I personally have the feeling, remains um, a pretty vague term, explained with reference to things such as trust or beliefs uh, of any given audience. Um, if you were to break down the concept of legitimacy as such in three to four sentences for our listeners and readers, how could this be done? So I agree that it, legitimacy is one of these contested concepts. And I, I think we have to recognize that there is a conceptualization level and then there's an operationalization level. And at the conceptualization level, uh, the way um, Michel Cern and myself and also other colleagues within the, the LEGO program have worked with this concept is to say that it, it, um, it's synonymous with or it tries to capture the, um, the perception that an institution's authority is appropriately exercised. And uh, a core aspect here is that we're talking about a perception or a belief that an institution's authority is appropriately exercised. And this makes legitimacy in our understanding distinct from a normative understanding of legitimacy that takes as a starting point various normative theories um, of what are good and appropriate properties of an institution's of an institution and, and derive normative conclusions about its normative value on that on that basis. So we we adhere to what we term a sociological conceptualization of, of legitimacy. That that said, I mean I want to um, I want to say that there are other potential sociological conceptualizations of legitimacy out there. And some people would say that well we need to consider um, uh, certain institutional qualities um, as inherently legitimate. For instance, if an institution is fair, it is by virtue of that, it is a legitimate institution. Or if it has authority, it is by virtue of that a legitimate institution. 
So you just mentioned polities like fairness or authority as potential sources of legitimacy for international organizations. What are other sources of legitimacy for IOs and in what way do they differ from legitimacy sources for domestic institutions? Well, I think at one level there are great similarities in terms of, of the, the type of source of legitimacy that exists for domestic and international institutions. I think these are they're part of the same family and, and, and the type of sources that we observe are also very similar. In that sense, we in our research also draw on comparative politics in, in identifying good candidates with regard to sources of legitimacy. Um, in a simplifying way, one may speak of sources of legitimacy, I think, at three different levels. And the level that most of us coming from the IR field, tend to focus on, has to do with the institutional qualities of these, of these international organizations. So, for instance, we go to the, to the transparency and inclusiveness and, 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 and effectiveness of the EU if we want to explain the EU's, the EU's legitimacy. That's kind of our, 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 our first entry into this topic, is to think about institutional qualities of these institutions. And... Uh, in the work that I have, have done with Michel Cyrn and the work that I've done with Jarnat Scholte, we, we have established different typologies to try to get at this. Michel and I, we speak of, of, of procedure versus performance as, as two central uh, categories or, or qualities of, of, of institutions. And, and in both respects, uh, international organizations can do better or worse on these. Uh, there are also democratic and, and a-democratic aspects of both of these. With Arnold Schulte, we have we speak of procedure and performance, but also then of, of of democratic, technocratic, and fair aspects of both procedure and performance. Um, and that is at the conceptual level. But we have also empirically tested the extent to which these institutional qualities matter for people. And it turns out that in survey experiments and uh, also in, in surveys with elites, we've been able to establish that, yes, these, these, are, these are aspects of international organizations that people care about and that are, are, are central to their, or that at least that, that feed into their legitimacy perceptions vis-a-vis uh, -vis these, these organizations. So these institutional qualities, I think, is, is, is one important aspect. And we have some good evidence now that, that they matter. Um, the second um, category, I would say, are our individual qualities or characteristics. The fact that we as individuals, when we develop our legitimacy beliefs, we don't only go to the institutions as such and use that as, 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 as the guiding um, tool in, in, forming these, in forming these legitimacy beliefs, but we also carry certain predispositions that make us more or less likely to think of these institutions as legitimate. Social trust? Social example. trust is a very good candidate there. So if you tend to be more trusting vis-a-vis -vis other people, you also tend to be more trusting vis-a-vis -vis the, 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 the collective institutions that you, together with other people, engage in when, when you take decisions in society. And that is then also extended to to international institutions. Likewise, we know that people tend to use heuristics, mm -hmm. uh, simplifying cognitive devices when they when they uh, take decisions uh, as a way of, of, of uh, uh, reducing the amount of information that they need to process mentally in order to come to a decision. And uh, we have in recent research been able to establish a number of different heuristics that are used when people form perceptions of international institutions. Um, and, and one of the reasons why they use this, I mean, we all use heuristics, but we may use them to a greater extent in relation to international organizations because these are somewhat more distant, somewhat less familiar, and therefore we're more likely to rely on these strategies. And one of them is 
that we uh, we tend to form opinions about international institutions based on our experiences of domestic institutions. So there's a very strong correlation between whether people have confidence in domestic courts, then they have confidence in international courts, domestic parliaments, then they have confidence in the European Parliament, domestic governments, then they have confidence in, in international executive bodies. So that's another, uh, another one of these. Um, and there are additional ones. We know from earlier research that, that uh, people also tend to let their, um, their trust in various um, elite actors, not least domestic political parties, guide their opinion formation vis-a-vis international institutions as well. So that's kind of a second level. And then a third level uh, more has to do with the fact that, that uh, all our thought patterns, in a sense, uh, could be influenced by, by larger social structures, such as cultural hegemony, uh, you know, the status of capitalism and society, mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, pervasive norms, for instance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we're talking about, obviously, still international organizations a lot. Um, but if we go back a step, why would you say it even matters whether international organizations are perceived as legitimate or not? Um, why don't we just say, okay, international organizations, they, they have agency, but um, in their respective policy field. And why do I as an individual citizen even care about perceived or actual legitimacy of an I.O.? Well, I mean, at, at one level, I have to say this is a, this is one of the questions that we are exploring in this research program. So I, I'd be happy to come back to you in three, four years' time to give you give give you the good list of findings that we have on this particular issue. I think it's a reasonable expectation to think that legitimacy is um, is is useful for international organizations and has some kind of impact ultimately on the problem solving capacity of these of these of these institutions or organizations. At one level, it's, it's, uh, we can expect that it would um, affect the ease with which they can um, uh, gain the resources in terms of funding, in terms of, of, um, of authority that they need to address certain problems. We would expect that, that the governments whose electorates are very skeptical of a particular institution would be less likely to confer resources and authority on that institution. Um, likewise, uh, you know, there is some evidence to suggest that that uh, legitimacy is very useful if you want to enlist it compliance. Uh, the alternatives to, to uh, legitimacy, which has been said to have a kind of compliance pull by itself, is to rely on coercion, mm-hmm. and, and which is a much more costly and, and, and painful type of, of, of uh, effort. Um, I also think it's fair to say that um, an international organization that is seen as being legitimate uh, will have an easier job uh, gaining government's approval for more ambitious policy plans than uh, what would have been the case otherwise. And with regard to all of these kind of these aspects of, of why why international why the legitimacy of international organizations ought to matter, we can come up with anecdotal examples, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, the more you know serious uh, systematic empirical analysis is something that is just currently being produced. I should say that there are also those, including in our group, such as uh, my colleague Hans Aine and, and, and his, his co-author Frederick Söderbaum in Gothenburg, who uh, make a contrarian argument, who argue that, in fact, uh, being seen as legitimate can make an organization complacent and that it might have negative effects. Uh, whereas if you suffer from a legitimacy crisis, that might very well have a very positive, stimulating 
kind of effect on the mm-hmm. on the effectiveness of the organization. And they they developed this argument in the context of the African Union, but it remains to be seen whether that can also be generalized. Interesting. Okay, we're going to see how this uh, debate will play out in the future. Um, to what extent do you think actually that um, individual government's positions, such as, for instance, recently the Trump administration's harsh criticism of organizations such as the World Trade Organization or NATO, um, affect the perceived legitimacy of international organizations? I think we have a pretty good reason to think that it does. Um, we have, in, in our research and, and work I've done together with Lisa Delmut, studied the uh, the way in which communication by elites affects uh, citizens' perceptions of the legitimacy of international organizations. And it's very clear that it does. And it particularly does so when the communication is negative. Uh, we as citizens are much more receptive to negative cues or negative messages than we are to positive endorsements. And this means that there's kind of an uphill battle for, for the advocates of global governance. And there are advantages in the public debate in terms of shaping public perceptions if you belong to to the anti-globalist uh, critics in a sense of which Donald Trump is certainly one candidate. Um, speaking of which Donald Trump um, much has been said and written about the current you name it illiberal backlash neo-authoritarian turn um, crisis of democracy um, would you say that there is a crisis of legitimacy in global governance as such, or does the current crisis um, of representation not constitute a systemic crisis that also encompasses um, entities at the national and international level? Um, to what extent can we say that this crisis stretches um, across various levels of governance and government? That's a very good question. Um, if I begin with the issue of whether there is a legitimacy crisis in global governance, I, 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 th- I think you, you correctly conveyed the narratives that we are confronted with at the moment, the narrative about anti-globalist populism um, in in many countries around the world, uh, the narrative about a backlash against international organizations, and in particular against international courts, for instance, among them the International Criminal Court, but also other courts, Um, the notion of an end of the liberal international order, and how this is being questioned by emerging powers that do not have a stake in the existing order and question uh, the legitimacy of an order which they are not part, uh, uh, but also the narrative that their international organizations as a particular form of global governance would be undergoing a legitimacy crisis because we are seeing the mushrooming of alternative forms of global governance, such as uh, uh, public-private uh, partnerships or, or uh, transnational governmental networks or, or other types of, of, um, of non-IO, non-hierarchical forms of, of global governance. But I, I, I want to be a bit cautionary, with, or I want to issue a kind of a cautionary warning here. Um, the empirics that I have looked at don't really support this very strong sense of a crisis for legitimacy in global governance. And uh, I fear it, it, there might be a little bit of a hyperbole, and there might be a little bit of, a, of us um, extrapolating a general trend from a few very, very important and very, very well-publicized cases, such as the election and rhetoric of Donald Trump or, uh, or Brexit as such. But whereas if we look at... at um, 
the perceived legitimacy of a larger array of international organizations and over longer time periods. We don't really see these patterns. Let me give you four, uh, four examples that respond exactly to, to what, uh, what, what I just mentioned uh, were dominant narratives about a crisis in, in legitimacy. The first one is that we would see this secular decline in the legitimacy of international organizations. And we have few time series when it comes to people's perceptions of international organizations. But if you think about two very authoritative international organizations, the UN at the global level and the EU at the regional level, both of which are often said to suffer from legitimacy crisis, it turns out that in for both of these organizations, the curve is essentially flat time or there's some uh, there's there's there are some fluctuations but it's there's no downward trend in either of the two cases um, uh, another aspect is that with regard to both of these organizations member states or citizens in member states tend to have more confidence in the UN and in the EU than what they do in their national governments which is fascinating. So if there's a crisis, in, uh, it's not necessarily a crisis of global governance, but potentially one of, of, of domestic governance and such. Another, you know, and, and a, a second one here would be the, the extent to which uh, we're, we're seeing you know, growing societal contestation of international organizations. And, and not least here at the Vetsebeer, there's been excellent work on, on politicization and contestation that is informed by this sense that there is growing, growing contestation. But according to some measures that we have, such as um, street protests or uh, discursive statements in, in, in news media and so on, there's no such thing as rising contestation. We don't really see the upward trend in the contestation. We see, we see some uh, overtime fluctuation, but it's, it's, it doesn't follow the, the trajectory of, of more contestation over time. So you think these are essentially mm, medially exacerbated perceptions by I mean, uh, speaking about buzzwords like uh, echo chambers, um, discursive spaces where certain topics blow up uh, all of a sudden, which lead to this um, uh, expectation or this perception that we're witnessing a crisis? Well, I think it's natural that we you know, take impression from what we are observing as truly very important um, sometimes normatively speaking, calamitous events such as uh, the, the election of Donald Trump in the US and Brexit uh, at the European level, uh, as well as the rise of, of uh, anti-globalist far-right parties in, in, in many countries. Um, but I would be careful uh, to uh, you know, go the full distance in, in, in saying that this, this is the, a sign of a legitimacy crisis for mm. global governance. I think it's a response to a number of other aspects, and you alluded to that in your, in your earlier question, that it might very well be have, some, have more to do with how domestic politics is organized. And it just happens to be that criticism of international organizations is one component of an anti-elitist populist message. It, it doesn't mean that that populist message derives with a response to international institutions as such. Um, but this could just be part of the, the political uh, package of messages that, that populists, uh, populists uh, use. This is a very good point because it brings me uh, to my next question. Um, as you and Michael Zwin writes in your forthcoming article, um, as you just said, one of the most prominent arguments put forward by right-wing populists in Europe is um, about the illegitimate encroachment, as you call it, um, of the EU on popular sovereignty. Um, and by virtue of adopting such a rhetoric and feeding on popular sentiments of perceived sovereignty loss, um, certain actors have become very successful successful in um, pushing through their agenda. 
which may also partly explain why we are witnessing phenomena such as Brexit right now. And also right-wing parties are expected to um, gain substantially in the upcoming European elections. The way I understood you right now, this might not be due to perceived legitimacy deficit of the European Union european union as such or as institutions but more of a translation of criticism of national governments into supranational politics um would you agree with that and uh on another note um in your eyes is there a solution to this meaning can the european union find a way to address this issue of dwindling trust in its institutions well i mean i couldn't have expressed the the the, the summary of what i was trying to say better myself um i you know it, Again, if, if we look at popular support for the EU, and here we can use legitimacy measures like trust or confidence, we can also use the extent to which people think that their membership is beneficial, which is a bit outside of legitimacy as such, but it's an indication of whether they appreciate the European Union. The EU is currently at an all-time high. We have, well, possibly with the exception of the years around Maastricht, but um, so as a response to Brexit, we have seen growing support for the European Union and growing confidence and trust in its institutions. So you know, from this perspective, the, the empirical data uh, challenge this popular perception of the European Union as, as suffering from some kind of, of legitimacy crisis. And I think it's important to bring these two, mm. two together. Um, and as, as I also said before, I, I, I think it's fair to say that whatever anti-European or anti-globalist criticism we're seeing, it's not only a response to what the EU as such is doing. It, it's very easy to think that that is the way it is, and it means that the EU has to reform. Uh, but this criticism is also you know, part of, this, um, uh, of, of, of the package of anti-elitist ideas that is being peddled by, yes. by populists on the right and on the left. And uh, the EU is a thankful target in that regard because it represents the, the faceless elite yes. be, beyond, beyond the, 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 the sovereign people, uh, if you want. But if we look at the core causes of, of the, the populist uprising, I think the EU's influence is a more diffuse, uh, is more diffuse in the sense that yes, it has helped to spur um, economic globalization that has caused uh, uneven economic consequences or effects in societies that have left some worse off, and this is what their way of protesting. Likewise, I, I would expect that the EU has also been involved in in stimulating and in in, in pushing inadvert or not necessarily consciously, but but through its activities, cultural change in European societies away from um, a belief in in, in the uh, in, 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 in the nation and, 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 and uh, in, yes. in, in older institutions, the church, fatherhood, and, and, and so on, and, and toward more progressive values. So both of these kind of structural changes that we often point to as sources of populism, the EU may have had a part in, but it's not so much how the particular European institutions are designed and so on that are the cause of, of the populist response, I would say. All right. Uh, interesting. Uh, we're very much looking forward to fascinating and uh, exciting results in this in these matters in the upcoming years. I would like to take a step back and ask you actually, um, how did you become a professor? Was uh, it clear from a very early point on that you wanted to go into academia or um, did you have other plans initially? Well, I grew up in a, in, a, in a small university town in the south of Sweden, in, in Lund, where I think we had an over-representation of academics. So it, uh, it was perceived by us growing up there as a natural 
career, or at least not as unnatural as it, as it might be in, in other parts of the population. Uh, and uh, my mother also, uh, as I grew up, uh, shifted career and became became an academic. So at close range, I saw I saw some of that. But I have to say that uh, that, that was not an obvious choice. I had a very inspiring high school teacher in the social sciences who made me very interested in international politics. And uh, throughout my uh, studies at university, I entertained the thought of whether I would go into the the, 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 the the policy world or whether it would be the academic world. And there were these branching moments, as, as is often the case for most of us, right, in life, where uh, more than one, one, one route is open and, 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 uh, and something t- tilts you over in one direction rather than the other. And, and uh, in my case, it was, uh, um, I decided to continue my academic studies or to pursue the academic career um, after I'd finished my PhD because of coincidences at, at that time. But I'm very happy with the choice. And I've had two shorter periods in the policy world, uh, one mm-hmm. with the European Commission and one with the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs. And, and, and both were useful in the sense of inoculating me against the thought that everything, that the grass is always greener on the other side. Yes, absolutely. Um, what is your favorite book in your field, meaning the field of comparative politics, international politics, international relations, and why? That's an exceptionally tricky question. Um, I think there have been many inspiring books um, over the years. Uh, but I have to say that, I mean, I was formed at an early stage by by uh, works by by uh, uh, Robert Cohen, and uh, as I, I read them as an undergraduate student, and uh, I've continued to follow his scholarship over the year years, of course. But um, uh, both in terms of kind of uh, in, ter- in terms of the, the way he studied. Um, World politics, international politics, was inspiring for me at that point, and and, and, um, and uh, worked well with the way with my outlook in a sense. So we were ontologically close in that respect. Uh, and and the other aspect is that uh, the way he presented his work and the, the style of writing and so on was very inspirational. And uh, so I, that that I think is was one important source of inspiration at one point in time. Okay. And what was the last book unrelated to political science that you enjoyed reading? So I had to actually look, you, you sent me this nice list of questions. So I had to look this up because it, it's, it's a book in Swedish by the, the, the classic Swedish author August Strindberg, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, uh, the principal Swedish uh, authors and a, a classic. And um, uh, I had reason to read this a couple of weeks ago, this book. It's, it's called The Confession of a Fool. And it's kind of a, a an autobiography in the sense that it's a book that he wrote at a point in time when he thought he would be accused of lunacy by his wife. And um, the book, half of half the book is is about their uh, their early romantic encounters and how they became a couple, and and how uh, she at the and this was the nineteenth century divorced from um, her her noble uh, husband, which was a big thing at the time, uh, and is not socially acceptable. Um, but it's uh, that's that part of the book is a beautiful, in a sense, love story. And the second part of a book is about the tearing apart of their marriage and how they are how, how, and, and the entering of paranoia in, into the into the uh, marriage. And it's exceptionally uh, well written and engaging. And uh, I have to say that um, 
as I picked up one of these classics, I always, you know, you can always fear, fear that will the will the language do do, do, justice? do justice? Will you be able to um, uh, actually appreciate it, despite being written in those times? But uh, this is just an, an, an excellent piece and warmly recommended. Uh, the Confession of a Fool. Confession of a Fool, Strindberg. Uh, you heard it. I would like to finish the interview by asking, um, how do you like Berlin and what is for you a must-see in this city or one of your favorite spots? Um, well, I, I can quote my, my, my wife on this. When we spent the summer here in 2012, she said, and we have, we have lived periods in, 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 in several different places, and she said, I could live here. And and that's something she hasn't said about the other places. Uh, I am uh, I I more have a tendency of, of liking liking it wherever I am in a sense. So, uh, but uh, I have to say that Berlin has a special place in my heart. So I I, I would stay I would I would stick with that statement. Uh, in terms of what to see and do, I mean it's a, it's such an incredibly rich uh, city in terms of what it has to offer. But I have to say that for me, uh, it's re it's. Um, the historic aspects of Berlin are um, their presence everywhere, um, you know, from from the 19th century and onwards, and the different periods, and their presence in in the city is for me what uh, is is the most stimulating, interesting, and and uh, um, yeah, makes me think every time I'm here uh, of uh, various aspects. So that's uh, so, but it's just one of many aspects, of course. All right. Um... Jonas Stalberg, thank you very much for this talk and um, hope to see you again soon here at the VZB or elsewhere. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on Orders Beyond Borders. If you have enjoyed this, check out our blog at ordersbeyondborders.blog.vitzb.eu or follow us on Twitter using the handle at obblog as well as on Facebook. You will find these links and more information in the description to this episode. Also, would like to hear what you think. If you have any comments or feedback on the series, write to us. You can reach us via email at obb.vitcb.eu as well as through our social media channels. This interview was produced by me, Linda Irulo, and Cedric Hawk. The team also includes Mitja Sinknesht, Yelena Tupac, and Irem Ebetuk. That's it for today. Until next time.